0: Americans are about to pay even more for our homes, for our cars, and for our credit card bills. The lead starts right now. The Federal Reserve is set to put in place the largest interest rate hike in decades. Now some economists say big picture this is a good thing, but American families struggling to get by may not agree. And. Even more bad news for American basketball star Brittany Griner as she sits in a Russian jail. Is it time for the Biden administration to push forward another prisoner swap? Then, the same kind of technology used for the best COVID vaccines, mRNA, is showing promise in treating other conditions, including some cancers. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our money lead. Prices are up and the stock market is down. President Biden is trying to put a positive spin on the economy, today insisting that tackling the worst inflation the U.S. has seen in decades remains a top priority. During a speech in front of the AFL-CIO in Philadelphia, the president touted his administration's coronavirus relief efforts, record new job creation, and low unemployment levels. Sure, But that's likely little consolation for the millions of Americans paying record prices for everything from food to gasoline, especially as many economists predict the Federal Reserve will drastically hike interest rates tomorrow to try to get control of the inflation. President Biden will try to address one of those crises, gas prices now averaging more than $5 a gallon with a visit to Saudi Arabia in a few weeks. The U.S. has been trying to pressure the Saudi-led OPEC Plus group to increase oil production in hopes of lowering overall costs. But a trip to kiss the ring of an autocrat with blood on his hands does not come without trade-offs. And today, members of the president's own party began raising major concerns about President Biden embracing a kingdom and a ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, whom Biden once pledged to make a pariah over grotesque human rights abuses. CNN's MJ Lee starts off our coverage today from the White House with more on what President Biden says is his plan to lower costs for American families.
1: Jobs are back, but prices are still too high. COVID is down, but gas prices are up. Our work isn't done.
2: Soaring inflation, showing few signs of easing up. A stubborn economic and political problem for President Biden.
3: It's never been this high.
2: Gas prices averaging a whopping $5 a gallon for the first time. The U.S. stock market tumbling into bear market territory. And the cost of consumer goods rising at the fastest pace in four decades.
1: So I have a plan to bring down the cost gas and food. It's going to take time.
2: The president traveling to Philadelphia today to once again address those economic issues. Biden in part blaming the war in Ukraine for record high gas prices.
1: I've doing everything in my power to blunt Putin's gas price hike. Just since he invaded Ukraine it's gone up $1. 74 a gallon.
2: As well as Republicans in Congress for opposing his legislative agenda. The problem is
1: Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to stop my plans to bring down costs for ordinary families. The fact is, Republicans in Congress are still in the grip of the ultra MAGA agenda.
2: Biden also trying to highlight some of the bright spots in the economy.
1: Since I've become president, we've created 8.7 million new jobs in 16 months, an all-time record. Our unemployment rate is near historic lows. 3.7 percent.
2: Still a year and a half into the Biden presidency, the reality growing increasingly clear. Inflation is still far from abating. Last year, Biden and other top officials had incorrectly predicted that high prices would be a passing phenomenon.
1: By the way, talk of inflation, the overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down.
2: Biden insisting in recent days that he will give the Federal Reserve ample room to do its work.
1: I'm not going to interfere with their critically important work.
2: The central bank now poised to increase interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point this week, marking the biggest single hike since 1994. Now, it just gives you a little sense of how important it is for the White House to try to lower gas prices, that it's now announced that the president is going to be traveling to Saudi Arabia, of course, one of the biggest oil producers in the world. And the president, uh, the White House confirmed, is going to be meeting with the Saudi crown's prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, while he is there. Uh, of course, this is so significant because of some of the past statements that we've heard from this president about wanting to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, wanting it to pay a price uh, after the gruesome murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, the president now getting a lot of criticism and a lot of heat for this decision. Some Democrats even saying he might want to reconsider and not go on this trip at all. Jake.
0: M.J. Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. The Federal Reserve's monthly meeting kicks off today amidst sky high inflation. And now some investors are growing increasingly worried that the Fed might do something it has not done in nearly three decades. CNN's Rahel Solomon joins us now live. in Rahel, The issue we're talking about isn't necessarily the possibility of raising interest rates. It's the Fed doing so by three quarters of a percentage point. What would that mean for Americans?
4: Well, essentially, Jake, it means that the cost of borrowing has gone up, and not just for us consumers, but also American companies and businesses, and that eats into their profits. But for us consumers, yes, that means the cost to borrow for practically anything is going higher. Credit card example is a great example of student loans, car loans, and mortgage loans. Let's take a look at mortgage loans. The average 30-year now hovering around 6%. Jake, last Thursday, you and I on this very show spoke about the average 30-year hitting about 5.3 percent. So that gives you a sense of sort of how dramatically rates have risen in just a very short period of time. And then consider the fact that in the beginning of this year, rates were closer to 3 percent. So a dramatic spike in mortgage rates, but really all across the board with the Fed raising rates. And I should say that's exactly the point. The Fed is trying to curb demand. It is trying to curb spending. And that's what raising rates do.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that because our viewers might be confused. The Fed raises interest rates, makes things more expensive. How does that help lower inflation?
4: It, it does appear a bit counterintuitive. So the idea essentially, right, is that we have a supply and demand imbalance. We have too much money chasing too few goods. And the Federal Reserve can't do much about supply chain issues disrupting uh, supplies, right? But what it can do something about is the demand for goods, right? And so it's making the demand, uh, it is hoping at least to sort of curb demand by making borrowing more expensive. I mean, just think if you were paying uh, more for a mortgage right now than you were last year, Maybe you'll rethink, one, perhaps buying the home, but maybe you'll rethink going out to eat. Maybe you'll rethink uh, going shopping. And so the idea is hopefully to sort of cool the economy. And the hope is that they can do it sort of gently and gradually without sort of a a screeching halt.
0: And Rahel, today, uh, new data showed that the producer price index, the PPI, remains uncomfortably high, over 10 percent. The PPI is another key inflation measure. Explain how it affects what we pay at the store.
4: It's a key inflation measure, Jake, but it's one that doesn't actually get a lot of attention because this is inflation essentially from the perspective of producers, right, or factory-level inflation. And so the idea, however, and the reason why it's very important today is because what we see here tends to trickle down to consumers a few months down the line. We know that what companies are experiencing, they tend to sometimes pass off to us consumers. And so the idea here, lending some support that there may not be relief for inflation and for consumers in the near term, this is exactly why Mohamed Alarian, who spoke on CNN this morning, a well-known uh, respected economist, said that he sees consumer inflation hitting about 9% uh, in the next few months. Certainly not something any consumer at home wants to hear.
0: No, not at all. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss this all with Matthew Slaughter. He's the dean of Dartmouth College's Tuck School of Business. He's a former member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for being here. So President Biden has been saying inflation is a top priority for him to tackle since the beginning of May. The reality is Americans continue to face record high gas prices, massive inflation, higher prices on everyday goods, such as groceries. What could the president do right now that might actually lower prices?
3: Well, one thing he's already done that's important is uh, allowing the Federal Reserve to do its job. So as Rahel was just rightly saying, the challenge for the U.S. economy right now is that aggregate demand has been growing much more than aggregate supply can be growing. So what the Fed's trying to do by dramatically raising interest rates is to raise the cost of borrowing to households and to businesses and thereby to cut into household spending, to cut into capital investment by companies, and to cool the housing market as well. Those things will help lower aggregate demand. Um, I think what's important also, what the president can do, the thinking about energy prices in particular, um, one thing that hasn't been done quite as much is trying to stimulate domestic production as well. The energy revolution we've had in the United States, thanks to shale technologies, allows us to produce a lot of energy in the United States, much more than 10 or 20 years ago, let alone in the oil price shocks of the 70s. So let the Fed do its job. Uh, think about domestic energy production. Those would be two things I would definitely start with.
0: Another idea uh, that the White House has previously discussed as, as being under consideration would be President Biden lifting uh, the Trump era tariffs against China uh, to help lower inflation. Biden, of course, has been, you know, long uh, throughout his entire career, a, a union advocate. His speech today was at the AFL-CIO convention in Philly, a, a gathering of union leaders, unions reportedly, want to keep all the tariffs in place. Um, how much of a difference would lifting tariffs make for the average American?
3: They would help a little bit. And I think, Jake, that's a great idea that you raise. I would add that to the list as a third one. I think a lot of the research has shown that those tariffs, however well-intentioned to try to help American workers and their families, the costs were borne precisely by American workers and families. Um, uh, costs have been higher in a lot of the products that use intensively, uh, aluminum and steel and some of the other products that have been subject to the Chinese tariffs. Globalization in general has been part of what controls the cost of living from increasing as much. And that's been true for decades. The Chinese tariffs messed up with that. And I think that would be another important thing that the president could do quite quickly, um, to allow some relief for American households.
0: Investors are getting worried that the Federal Reserve, uh, Hike, we'll hike interest rates again tomorrow, um, possibly uh, up to three quarters of a point. That could massively hurt Americans when it comes to mortgage rates, credit card, uh, auto loans. How much do you think that an interest rate hike of that size would actually work to combat inflation?
3: Yeah, great question. So the Fed controls what's called the federal funds lending rate, and they can raise that uh, as much as they might want. And there's an expectation they'll raise it at least half a percent tomorrow, as you said, if not three quarters of a percent. That then feeds through capital markets to the cost of mortgage loans, the revolving credit card interest rates that we see, the cost of borrowing for companies if they're issuing corporate debt. So the higher is that cost, the less households will spend on durable goods, the less they might go out and try to buy a new home. And what's hard is that that has to happen to allow inflation to get under control because the challenges of COVID around the world, snarling supply chains, those things are very difficult to change on the supply side. So what we can do in the United States is try to slow the rate of growth, if not um, reduce it a bit, um, aggregate demand. The challenge is the Fed does that too much. Monetary policy works with long and variable lags that it might actually cut demand so much in the result that we end up having a, a decline in output or what economists typically call a recession.
0: The White House has confirmed that President Biden's going to travel to Saudi Arabia in a few weeks, where he's expected to meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. How much power does Saudi Arabia have uh, to try to lower gas prices here in the U.S., and how quickly could it happen?
3: Yeah, great question. Their power lies in the slack capacity they have to produce more oil, to generate more oil production that would lower the price of oil, which they input for gas prices we all see here. So it works through a couple of steps. Again, that's, they're one large producer. No one can control the tragedy that's playing out in the war in Ukraine. That's why I come back to a little bit. We've got a lot of domestic producers in the United States that, thanks to the energy revolution. I think some conversations with American producers would be something that might not have the geopolitical fraughtness of, of going to Saudi Arabia.
0: You just talked about the risks uh, of the Fed pushing us into a recession. Stocks plunged into a bear market yesterday. That means a 20 percent decline from previous highs. The last four bear markets have accurately predicted recessions. Do you think that one is inevitable?
3: Well, what I do know is in the first quarter of this calendar year so far, total output in the United States actually already shrank. It shrank at an annualized rate of 1.6%. So judging recession is hard. It's oftentimes you need the data to come through, but we've already had a slight decline in output in the United States so far. And as you point out, falling asset prices for stocks and other uh, financial assets that tends to slow demand growth and hiring for companies. And that's part of what, if it happens too much, can lead to a recession. So like the US economy is in a pretty delicate point right now, it's, it's a very difficult job that the Fed has. And um, unfortunately, we'll, we're kind of just gonna need to wait and see how the economy and markets play out in the coming months to know exactly where we are.
0: All right, Matthew Slaughter, Dean of the Tuck School. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Coming up, an update from a Moscow court on U.S. basketball star Brittany Greiner, who's being detained in Russia, plus a rare and very public back and forth between the top two members of the January 6th select committee. Stay with us. New worries for detained American WNBA star Brittany Griner tops our world lead today. She's been held in Russia for more than 100 days, accused of smuggling drugs and officially classified as, quote, wrongfully detained by the U.S. State Department. Now a Moscow court says Griner will have to stay even longer. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleiken is in St. Petersburg, Russia for us. And Fred, this is not the first time Russia has extended Greiner's detention. How much longer do yeah. they say she'll be there?
5: You're absolutely right, Jake. Not the first time. Certainly there is no end in sight right now. She's going to remain in pretrial detention until at least July 6th, so at least another 18 days. Of course, still unclear what is going to happen after that. It was quite interesting because the Russians today said that all this was at the request of the investigation. So obviously, the Russian investigators still are doing some sort of work there preparing for that trial, which of course could also take an extended period of time. Now you're absolutely right to say that the United States has said, the State Department has said that she, they list her as being wrongfully detained and that was something that was actually reiterated today by the State Department once again uh, in a in a press briefing uh, just a couple of hours ago when they said that Britney Griner should not remain in detention even a single day longer. Now the Russians for their part are saying that she was caught with drugs as they put it as she tries to uh, try to uh, enter Russia through an airport in Moscow. This was apparently Cannabis oil and that can carry a sentence here in this country very tough laws about 10 years So still a lot of uncertainty and certainly right now no end in sight for Brittany Griner
0: And Fred uh, jailed uh, outspoken Putin critic Alexei Navalny was transferred to a maximum Mm. security prison We just found out was this a surprise?
5: It, it wasn't really a surprise in that it was clear that he was going to be transferred to a maximum security prison. It wasn't clear which one it was going to be. And certainly, all of this did cause a lot of uncertainty for an extended period of time throughout the day. Essentially, what happened is that uh, Alexei Navalny's lawyers said they went to the prison where he had been kept and were simply told there is no convict by that name here at this facility. Now, they were not told where exactly he was. And that's why they said, look, he's missing. He, no one really knows where he is at this point in time. It wasn't until much later in the day that someone from a local oversight committee of that region came out and said, yes, he had been transferred to a maximum security prison in a place called Melchivo. It's about to say about 100 miles east of from where he was being kept before. A very, very tough place. It's known as uh, here in, in Russia. So certainly a lot of uncertainty there. And one of the things uh, that we do have to say, uh, Jake, is that, this local person from that oversight committee says he's been transferred there. However, Navalny's people, his spokeswoman, said they have not gotten any confirmation that that is actually the case. And they do warn. They say, look, as long as his uh, lawyers don't have any access to him, he is one-on-one, as they put it, with the system that tried to kill him. Jake?
0: Yeah. Fred Pleitkin in St. Petersburg, Russia. Thank you so much. Turning to the raging battle for eastern Ukraine, the mayor of a captured Ukrainian town just west of Severo Donetsk has switched sides, according to the Ukrainian prosecutor's office, which is now investigating him for treason. Putin's army today told defenders of the azot chemical plant in Severodonetsk to, quote, lay down their arms. Ukraine believes around 500 civilians remain stuck inside. Their status is unknown. Now authorities tell us every minute of quiet between bombings in Severodonetsk is a chance to get people out. It's a daring journey made harder by the destruction of all three bridges out of the embattled city. Also today, Ukrainian officials say 64 Ukrainian soldiers killed last month defending the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol have been repatriated to Ukrainian-controlled territory to be buried with dignity. This is part of an exchange where the bodies of 56 Russian soldiers were returned to their homeland. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell just weighed in on the bipartisan gun reform deal in the Senate, but his answer includes an important caveat. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he is a yes on a gun reform package if the final draft of the bill lines up with the framework announced on Sunday. This would be a boost for the bipartisan group negotiating the deal, hoping to get more Republicans on board. Let's get right to CNN's Lauren Fox, who's live on Capitol Hill. And Lauren, the legislative text is, is key here. How significant is McConnell's support?
6: Well, McConnell never says something he doesn't intentionally mean to say, Jake, you know that from covering Washington. And it is obviously significant that McConnell came out backing this framework, assuming, he said, that the legislative text really matches the intentions of that framework. And that is gonna be a heavy lift. Over the next several days, we expect that that is what staff and members are going to be working overtime to finish up. The goal being to finish that legislative text, write the final bill, communicated to members and then put it on the floor as soon as early next week. Now, that could obviously put lawmakers in a position where they are going to have to make decisions quickly. And some Republicans are already signaling that they think that this process is moving too quickly. Senator Kevin Kramer telling me earlier today that he viewed this process as moving too fast, that it's not going through the normal committee process, regular order. Meanwhile, Democrats obviously arguing that this issue is urgent, that they need to take steps immediately and as soon as possible. Jake.
0: And there was a Republican uh, lunch today where much of the discussion was around the red flag provision in the bill. The bill would provide incentives for states to pass red flag laws. Is this provision going to trip up other Republicans, uh, preventing them from following McConnell's lead?
6: Yeah. I mean, look, right now, there are 10 Republicans who support the framework, which included incentives for states to pass these red flag laws. But the hope. And goal of Senator John Cornyn, the leading Republican, was to attract more Republican support once this framework was out. And I'm told from multiple Republican members in this lunch that they had a lot of discussion around red flag laws, whether or not it would interrupt due process for gun owners across the country. Senator Kramer again told me that at the end of the day, he never thought that red flag laws were that good of an idea anyway. So what's the point of giving states money to pass? Their own. I'm also told that Senator Cornyn presented some internal polling showing support for things like red flag laws, showing support for other provisions in this framework. The goal, of course, to show Republicans that they can walk down this path and that it is not going to cost them in the midterms come November. Jake.
0: All right. Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. Also on Capitol Hill. Mixed messages. From the leaders of the January 6th Select Committee investigating the deadly insurrection, members seemingly at odds over whether their findings could possibly lead to criminal referrals of Trump and or any of his associates, referrals to the Justice Department for prosecution. Now, as CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, we're learning tomorrow's hearing has been postponed. The January 6th Select
7: Committee is at a crossroads. As they continue to work through marathon public hearings, revealing the mountain of evidence they've uncovered, they're now wrestling with what to do next with that information.
8: Attorney General Garland is my constituent, and I don't browbeat my constituents. I think that he knows, his staff knows, the U.S. attorneys know uh, what's at stake here. They know the importance of it, but I think they're rightfully paying close attention.
7: The committee making it clear they don't have the power to prosecute crimes. They are a legislative body. But over the course of their investigation, if they uncover evidence of a crime, they've said they'll refer that information to the Department of Justice. Then, Monday night, Chairman Benny Thompson surprised many when he suggested the committee did not plan to make a formal criminal referral.
9: No, that's not our job. Our job is to look at the facts and circumstances around January 6th, what caused it and make recommendations after that.
7: Thompson's comments were quickly refuted by his fellow members. Vice Chair Liz Cheney tweeting, the committee has, quote, not issued a conclusion regarding potential criminal referrals. And Representative Elaine Luria adding, if criminal activity occurred, it is our responsibility to report that activity to the DOJ. For months, they've also made it clear if the Department of Justice wants to act, They do not need to wait for the committee.
10: Any credible evidence that the president of the United States, the former president, was engaged in criminal activity, or anybody else for that matter, needs to be investigated. As
7: for Attorney General Merrick Garland...
10: I'll be watching all of it, and I can assure you that uh, the January 6th prosecutors are watching all the hearings as well.
7: The Wednesday hearings have been postponed, the next scheduled for Thursday. The committee eventually plans to show how Trump tried to install a puppet attorney general to investigate non-existent claims of voter fraud and the pressure campaign that was put on Vice President Mike Pence to not certify the election results. And the question is uh, exactly what topic will we hear on Thursday night? The committee had a carefully laid out schedule that was based on these seven different points that they believe point and show that Donald Trump tried to undermine the election results. We believe that Thursday is now going to focus on that pressure campaign against the former Vice President Mike Pence. That, of course, one of the major topics that the committee has been focused on. Jake?
0: We're also learning that the Capitol Police have finished reviewing security footage to determine whether or not Republican lawmaker Barry Loudermilk led a reconnaissance tour with Trump supporters before January 6. Uh, what did Capitol Police find?
7: So Capitol Police sent a letter to the House Administration Committee uh, which detailed what they found when they reviewed the security footage They didn't absolve Barry Loudermilk of anything. Of course, the Capitol Police were not accusing him of anything. This all germinated from the January 6th committee asking him to come in and talk to them about evidence that they had discovered about these tours that Loudermilk had given. But what Tom Manger, the chief of Capitol Police, said in this letter was that there was no evidence that Loudermilk uh, brought anyone over here to the Capitol building, that it was instead what they appeared to seem to be an innocent tour of his constituents through the Capitol complex now, the committee still says that they have evidence to the contrary. Uh, at this point, Jake, that evidence has not been revealed, but committee sources have told us to stay tuned. Jake.
0: All right, we will. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. A man fires a gun at a kid's summer camp in Texas. What did police do? That's ahead. Now to our national lead in the wake of the Uvalde massacre, where law enforcement waited for more than an hour before confronting an armed gunman. Police responded swiftly in two recent incidents, shooting and killing suspects who were attempting to gain entry to areas with children present. In Texas, an armed gunman fired his weapon into a room filled with children at summer camp. And in Alabama, one man tried to enter an elementary school and later attempted to take an officer's firearm. CNN's Josh Campbell takes a look at the actions from police in these clashes to keep kids safe parents
11: in texas just grateful to hold their children after police rushed to a north texas sports field house where a summer camp was being held and shot a gunman threatening the camp police in duncanville texas near dallas said they exchanged gunfire with the man who opened fire at the camp on monday where some 250 children aged 4 to 14 and staff were present some hiding he had text me and say mom i think someone's entered the field house with a gun when the gunman entered the building, police say camp counselors began moving the children to a safe area and locking doors.
12: He went in the room and then we heard shooting and then we got scared and everybody started crying. They just told us to stay quiet and we were in the men's room, so there were showers in there, so we hid in the showers.
3: I was praying to God just so nothing would happen. Police
11: shot and killed the gunman. No children's staff or officers were hurt, according to officials.
9: Upon hearing that gunshot, they did what they were trained to do, the counselors. They moved the kids to a safe area and began locking the doors. The suspect went to a classroom, was unable to get inside, and did fire one round inside the classroom where there were children inside. There was no hesitation. No hesitation whatsoever. as we're, We're thankful for their training that they do exactly what they're trained to do.
11: In Alabama, just last week, a man was shot and killed by a school resource officer after police say he attempted to enter an elementary school where 34 children were attending a summer literacy camp. Law enforcement said he was also trying to forcibly enter a patrol vehicle and was killed after an altercation with the officer at the
1: school. He went straight to the threat, he confronted it, and he dealt with it, and it ended in, unfortunately, the death of the suspect. But that's the safest alternative, to keep that threat out of that school.
11: Now, Jake, uh, today marks three weeks since that deadly Uvalde shooting, and still so many questions that law enforcement has not answered, specifically why that was treated as a barricade-type situation rather than an active shooter. You compare that to some of these examples we just brought you there in Alabama, also yesterday at the summer camp in Dallas. Those are the textbook ways that law enforcement is supposed to respond, to go to the sound of gunfire. It's also important to point out, Jake, that particularly in that Dallas uh, incident, it's not just law enforcement that's being applauded. Authorities are also praising the work of those camp counselors who quickly sprang into action after the sound of gunfire, getting those kiddos to safety. Thankfully, no one other than the shooter in that
0: incident was harmed. Jake. All right, Josh Campbell in Houston for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, a look at how the same kind of technology being used for COVID vaccines could produce treatments for some kinds of cancer. Stay with us. In our health lead, mRNA vaccines have been vital to help fight COVID-19, and now there's potential for that same biotechnology to be used to treat cancer. Scientists who have studied this technology for decades are focused on clinical trials aimed at targeting this disease. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta explores one trial where a pancreatic cancer patient has found a new sense of hope.
10: In December 2020 mRNA vaccine started changing the course of the pandemic. At the same time, that same technology was possibly changing Barbara Brigham's life in an entirely different way.
2: She said, I just want you to know that you have pancreatic cancer.
10: Pancreatic cancer is one of the most aggressive forms of the disease. And that motivates Dr. Vinod Balachandran at Memorial Sloan Kettering to find a cure for it.
11: We really need new treatments for patients. Stay tuned. Right now, the immunotherapies that are used to treat cancer patients, they only work in about 20% of patients. So about 80% of the time, the current immunotherapies are not very effective.
10: So Dr. Balachandran teamed up with BioNTech. You may remember them as a developer of an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. Their goal to begin trialing mRNA as a pancreatic cancer treatment.
2: I was willing to try whatever would prevent me from having a shorter life than I really wanted to have.
10: Cancer has challenged scientists for years, in part because the cells continuously mutate, making them harder for the immune system to detect. But that's exactly why BioNTech's co-founders, Dr. Uhar Sahin and Dr. Aslam Trichy, have been working with mRNA for decades to see if they could outsmart cancer. How do you know it is specific really to that cancer and not to healthy human cells in that particular patient's body?
13: That was actually um, uh,
1: the last uh, two decades uh, which we invested in uh, to, to identify how we get the best targets the best mutations, the best molecules to recognize cancer cells and distinguish them from normal cells.
10: Remember how mRNA works in COVID-19 vaccines? It essentially gives our immune system detailed instructions to make a specific part of the virus so our immune system can then learn to recognize it and create antibodies against it. Those instructions can then be tailored and tweaked quickly if the virus evolves. The idea is This could work in a similar way, but for cancer.
11: The optimal technology to be able to custom make a vaccine rapidly in real time, which is really important for a cancer patient who wants care, uh, the best technology out there, we thought, was mRNA.
10: Let me explain how this worked for Barbara. Doctors first removed her tumor, and a sample of it was flown almost 4,000 miles to BioNTech's headquarters in Germany. What we do is we sequence the tumor, the DNA from the tumor and identify the mutations by comparing the DNA from the tumor with the DNA from the blood because the blood is is non-mutated and then you can see, oh, at that position there is a mutation. The next step involves using a computer algorithm to figure out which of those mutations should become targets for the vaccine, the ones that Barber's immune system will recognize and then deploy T cells to fight against. It took just about six weeks for Barbara's custom cancer treatment to be created. And once it made it back over the Atlantic, the first vaccine dose was infused into her blood. That was December 15th, 2020, around the same time the mRNA vaccines for COVID became available. Along with her standard chemo and immunotherapy, Barbara has received nine mRNA vaccinations. And she says everything is so far, so good.
2: Had one last immuno last september of which i also had a cat scan at that time and it was negative for pancreatic cancer and everybody is celebrating but whatever time i have it's 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 given me more time to enjoy my grandchildren and my children and my life
14: such uh interesting science jake and, and they were working on mrna as a technology for cancer even before COVID. Uh, They pivoted to COVID when the pandemic started. So these are some of the earliest results that we're seeing, phase one results. But if it works, Jake, we're talking essentially about an individualized immunotherapy. Immunotherapy has been around for some time, but this would be individualized to each patient's particular cancer, Jake.
0: Let's turn to COVID vaccines for a second. An FDA panel just voted to give emergency use authorization For Moderna's shot to be given to kids 6 to 17, this age group's already been able to get the Pfizer shot. For about a year, will the Moderna authorization make any sort of difference?
14: Well, I mean, as you point out, uh, a vaccine has been available for that age group uh, really for some time now. And if you look overall at the numbers, about 30% of of children in that age group, um, 5 to 11 or so, have gotten the vaccine, about 60% age 12 to 17. So are there some people who are holding out for the Moderna vaccine? Uh, perhaps, and, and it does give more confidence if you see both these vaccines now authorized. But, you know, parents who've wanted this, they've had an option for some time now.
0: The FDA will next tackle vaccines for those five and younger. Once approved, shots could be available sometime next week, we're told, but there's still a lot of hesitancy from parents of kids uh, in this age group. Why do you think that is?
14: Well, I mean, first of all, the hesitancy is real. I mean, we've seen that play out and potentially get larger as the ages go down. I think I think about 18% roughly of parents of children this age say they would go out and get this right away. 27% definitely not, and uh, in the middle is, is everyone else. I think, you know, there's, there's two major things. One is there's this conception that, look, this is a disease that doesn't affect children as much, um, which is true. It does not affect children as much. Uh, How much is enough, though, for parents to be worried about this? About 480 children under the age of five have died of COVID. To give you some frame of reference, Jake, um, before chickenpox vaccine, about 100 people died every year of chickenpox. And there was a clamoring to get a vaccine out there. Now we have 480 over a year and a half. And, you know, there's this hesitancy. It may change over time, uh, you know, if people become more comfortable with the vaccine.
0: But I think that's what's really driving it. If you had a kid that age, would you get him or yeah. her vaccinated?
14: Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. The, the, the risk, you know, this is a risk-reward analysis, like, like many times we've seen in terms of these emergency use authorizations. I think the safety profile is very good. There was concerns about myocarditis in people who were in late teens, early 20s. The young kids aren't getting that sort of big inflammatory reaction, so they're not getting as as many side effects. And there's benefit. Again, four hundred and eighty deaths. I mean, this that's that's a lot if you take it in the context of things.
0: Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much as always. The White House says it's his fault, but really just how much is Vladimir Putin to blame for soaring gas prices? We'll take a reality check next. Welcome to the lead, of Jake Tapper. This hour, Hunter Biden's ex-wife is talking about her 24-year marriage to the president's son, and it's what she's not saying that is getting attention today. Plus, blame Putin? That's whom the White House says is responsible for the soaring gas and food prices in the U.S., but just how responsible is Russia's leader? We'll take a look, and leading this hour, President Biden promising to turn Saudi Arabia into the, quote, pariah of the Middle East, Well, that was then. This is now. And after dodging the question for weeks, now the White House is confirming Biden will visit the nation in July and meet with the same man intelligence officials say is responsible for the brutal murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. CNN's M.J. Lee joins us now live from the White House. M.J., how much heat does the president think he's going to take for this meeting with the Saudi crown prince?
2: A a whole lot of heat, uh, Jake. This meeting that is upcoming is just so counter to what the president has said in the past about wanting to make the Saudi government pay a price, wanting to make it a pariah uh, following the gruesome murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, it's worth reminding everyone that U.S. intelligence had determined uh, that it was the Saudi crown's prince who had ordered uh, the killing of Khashoggi. Uh, and this was a report that the Biden administration actually released last year well, notably, yesterday, uh, White House press secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked several times whether the president believes that MBS, the Saudi crown, crown prince, is responsible for Khashoggi's murder. Uh, she was asked this several times by CNN, by a colleague of ours at The Washington Post, and she wouldn't give a direct answer.
15: I mean, we've spoken to this before. The president is is
2: focused on uh, getting things done for the American people. On the question that I asked, though, does he believe uh, that MBS was responsible for Khashoggi's death? You know, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was something that we and so many others around the world took very, very seriously. Uh, He he issued an extensive report on Khashoggi's murder. Go ahead. Go ahead. I've already answered the question. Now, the White House has emphasized that when the president goes to Saudi Arabia that uh, there are going to be human rights issues that are discussed, though it has been pretty reticent to answer questions about whether Khashoggi's murder itself is going to be specifically addressed. And, Jake, we are hearing now from Democrats, including some of uh, the president's allies, basically saying that this trip is a mistake, and particularly when it comes to the meeting with the Saudi crown prince that he really should reconsider.
0: The White House says this trip is not just about calming down energy markets, despite the fact that gas prices are at record highs here in the U.S. Why are they downplaying that? Why do they continue to emphasize the the security in the region argument?
2: Yeah, you know, it is a really, really good question. The White House has seemed pretty determined to downplay sort of the gas, the energy, uh, the oil prices aspect of uh, this future trip. Uh, And Saudi Arabia, of course, is uh, one of the biggest oil producers in the country. The U.S. would certainly like to see the country produce a whole lot more oil. Uh, I think we are seeing that the human rights issues that we just discussed, including the Khashoggi murder, it really looms large for this White House. It has been a challenge for this White House to sort of answer the question of how the president has evolved from uh, a few years ago saying that he was determined to make this government uh, and the crown prince a pariah to now basically signaling that he is okay doing business uh, with this country. Uh, Now, this is why I think we are also seeing even Democrats, again, uh, weighing in to say that this would be a mistake. Uh, The White House has really wanted to sort of uh, emphasize and wanted to sort of show that it's not necessarily necessarily the president doing a complete 180 uh, just for the sake of lowering gas prices. But there is no question, Jay, that a big, big component of this trip, of course, is going to be about oil. It's going to be about gas prices and energy issues overall.
0: MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. In our money lead, President Biden today told a crowd of union members in Philadelphia that his administration has made, quote, extraordinary progress on the economy. This despite, of course, the worst inflation in decades. Biden blamed many of the economy's problems on Donald Trump and the Republican Party. He also said Russian President Vladimir Putin is a major culprit as well. CNN's Tom Foreman fact-checked that last part and found that Putin is not quite the boogeyman that Biden makes him out to be, at least when it comes to energy prices.
16: In the air, on the ground, in businesses and homes, rising prices are scorching American pocketbooks. Yet who does the White House blame?
1: The leader of faraway Russia, Vladimir Putin. We've never seen anything like Putin's tax on both food and gas. i am doing everything in my power the blunt Putin's gas price hike
16: Certainly when Russia invaded Ukraine global energy prices soared as much of the world turned away from Russian fuel exports Agricultural export problems in Russia and production disruptions in Ukraine have the World Food Program tweeting about ripple effects everywhere These two countries supply about 30% of all the wheat exports globally so money watchers like Julia
4: Horowitz say... I think Joe Biden has a point. And the war in Ukraine is absolutely exacerbating um, rising food costs and rising fuel costs that are putting pressure on American households all across the country.
16: But hold on. America's inflationary surge started in May of 2020 while Trump was still in office and has skyrocketed under Biden. The war effect kicked in only a few months ago. Economists say that bigger trend was driven by the pandemic, which is still disrupting production in places like China and supply chains all over. But they also cite supply's evil twin, demand for goods and services, which is way up, pushed by Americans eager to spend pandemic savings. And that has President Biden himself taking heat.
4: There's a lot of debate right now among economists about whether the stimulus packages that were passed by the Biden administration fueled demand and that supercharged the inflation problem.
16: Still, many financial analysts say while Putin does not deserve all the blame, his war in Ukraine has undeniably made inflationary woes worse, even as the White House keeps promising to somehow make it all better.
1: Jobs are back, but prices are still too high. COVID is down. But gas prices are up. Our work isn't done.
16: The White House would not be wrong to say inflation is really being caused by a global economy, the lingering effects of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine and Americans on a spending spree after being cooped up for two years. But that doesn't make much of a political slogan, Jake. So it's much easier to say, see that bad guy in the Kremlin? It's his fault.
0: Yeah. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our politics lead, the House of Representatives has now passed a bill providing enhanced security to US Supreme Court justices and their immediate family members. It ends an increasingly acrimonious standoff between Democrats and Republicans over the bill's delay. The final vote in the House was 396 to 27. Every Republican voted for the bill. Many New Jersey Democrats and other liberal members voted against it saying they wanted to amend the bill to include protections for other federal judges. This for the New Jersey congresspeople after a New Jersey judge's son was killed in a shooting at her home two years ago. But as CNN's Whitney Wild reports for us now, the bill took on new urgency after the arrest of an armed man near the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The man told authorities he traveled from California to kill the justice.
1: The protests that have been taking place outside the justice's home these past months are unacceptable. There are threats to justices' Across the board.
17: Tonight, the Supreme Court security protection debate ends after lawmakers approved a bill to help boost police presence at the homes of Supreme Court justices.
3: Why did it take so long? Six weeks ago was when the draft leak happened and the protests started at justices' homes almost immediately.
17: The proposed bill expands the authority of the Supreme Court police to protect, quote, any member of the immediate family of the chief justice, any associate justice, or any officer of the Supreme Court if the marshal determines such protection is necessary. Action on the bill had been delayed because Democrats wanted to expand it to specifically include protection for staff and clerks.
7: This bill has to do with the families of Supreme Court justices, I support protecting them. I also support protecting the employees and their families of the Supreme Court.
17: The more narrow measure took on new urgency in recent days after police say a man admitted he flew from California to Maryland, intending to kill Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and then himself to give his life purpose. Department of Homeland Security officials are warning about a tense threat environment as the Supreme Court inches closer to potentially seismic opinions on guns and abortion.
3: We're seeing threats from all parts of the political spectrum.
17: Protesters on both sides of the abortion debate have descended on the Supreme Court. Protesters have also gathered at the homes of conservative justices over the last several weeks, prompting some to point to this law from 1950.
1: I wrote to Attorney General Garland a month ago asking why he wasn't enforcing the laws on the books already against judicial intimidation.
17: That law designed to ban protesting outside the homes of judges, witnesses, and jurors to try to influence the court system.
10: The purpose of, the, of that statute
16: appears to be to keep judges from being influenced by public opinion and in particular public opinion of them. People, possibly a mob of people outside
14: their homes.
17: Meanwhile, Jake, we are learning new details about the man who targeted Kavanaugh. The Montgomery County police chief tells CNN that when Nicholas Roski saw the U.S. Marshals posted outside Kavanaugh's home, the suspect turned around to contemplate his next move. That is when he texted his sister, who convinced him to call 911, Jake, and that's exactly what he did.
0: Thank God for that. Whitney Weil, thanks so much. Taking... Hits on the economy, feeling the heat from his own party about the visit to Saudi Arabia. Can Biden turn his message and Democrats' midterm fate around? And an entire town is now surrounded by raging floodwaters as roads disappear and homes wash away. Stay with us. And we're back uh, with our money lead, President Biden, today trying to put a positive spin on the economy as Americans continue to grapple with record high prices. On food and gasoline. Joining us live to discuss is Cedric Richmond, who's a senior advisor for the Democratic National Committee. He just departed the White House where he was the director of public engagement. Cedric, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. So, President Biden puts a lot of the blame for the country's economic woes on Vladimir Putin, on Donald Trump, on the Republican Party, on corporate greed. But economists were predicting that all the money being injected into the U.S. economy in 2020 and 2021 could help cause inflation, doesn't President Biden bear some responsibility for how bad things are?
12: No.
8: If you look at, uh, Jake, if you look at the president's three-pronged plan in the beginning, it was to pass the American Rescue Plan so we could get shots in arms, get schools back open, get the economy open and not shut down again, which all happened. And then it was to go do the bipartisan infrastructure bill so that we could finally start investing in American infrastructure, creating jobs right here. In the United States, jobs that pay well. And then the third prong was to reduce those household costs, the cost of health care, the cost of elder care, the cost of child care, and continue to bring household costs down. And all of the economists said, if we pass the last portion of it, it would do that. And so what you have is Republicans purposely obstructing it and keeping it from happening, then at the same time saying Uh, inflation is high and we know we have work to do there, but, uh, the Republican opposition, just for the sake of opposition to legislation that would bring household costs down is what's continuing, uh, to spark it. But the president also laid out his plan to continue to deal with inflation to continue to deal with, uh, rising gas prices. Uh, he wants to continue to pay down the debt uh we've done that more than or the president has done that more than any other president uh mm-hmm. in this short time period and the question becomes why won't the republicans really seriously take up the end of the president's agenda uh which would allow him to tax the rich so that we can continue to pay down
0: uh the debt reduce the deficit which would also reduce inflation well you're blaming that on republicans but democrats controlled the senate and it was Two Democrats, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, West Virginia, who who actually blocked that. Yes, the Republicans are not participating or cooperating at all. But if you're blaming it on Republicans, then is it also not the fault of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin that there's inflation? Well, I'll just tell you that you you have united
8: Republican opposition. All fifty uh, Republican senators are sitting on their hands and not doing anything to address these inflationary pressures, which there is a plan uh, to deal with. And we'll continue to talk and work with uh, Senator Cinema and Manchin uh, to continue to try to push the agenda. But when you have united opposition from uh, the other party, uh, this is what you get. And I think that's what Americans are so frustrated with is congressional gridlock when it's their lives that are being affected by it. And there's a
0: plan. There's a bill Mm -hmm. and we just urge Congress to act. President Biden says battling inflation is his top priority, but the White House says his upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia is not going to be focused on skyrocketing energy costs as much as it's going to be focused on security issues. Why is the Biden administration downplaying what will obviously be an important part of his conversation with MBS, getting OPEC to open, turn on the spigot to bring down gas prices in the United States?
8: Well, look, the president is uh, by far the world's leader in terms of foreign policy. We see how he united the West in terms of tackling and fighting uh, Putin's aggression. And this is a part of making sure that uh, he continues to rally countries in terms of if you look at uh, the peace accord in Yemen or you look at other issues around the world. Uh, if you look at uh, Israel, two state solution, uh He'll be doing all of those things while he's over there. And Mm -hmm. uh, it is a uh, summit and a trip that focuses on the national security of this country and the world. But part of national security also is the price of all, And the president has used every tool in his toolkit, including the petroleum reserve. And I'm sure the conversation Mm -hmm. will come up, but that is not the purpose of the trip. The purpose of the trip is to continue to be a world leader in terms of Uh, safety and security and human rights.
0: Well, speaking of human rights, I mean, let's remind uh, our viewers what then private citizen Joe Biden said about then President Donald Trump cozying up to the Saudis. Take a listen.
1: After the cold-blooded murder of a journalist giving the crown prince of Saudi Arabia the benefit of the doubt, look, look at the example this sets around the world. Forget what it does here. Think of what's around the world. People wonder, what has become of us?
0: What has become of this? President Biden is about to kiss the ring of MBS. He was responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. According to our own intelligence, does that question not still apply? What has become of us? Well, let me just start here, Jake. The president's not kissing the ring of any world leader. Uh,
8: that's not who Joe Biden is. He's never done that. And he's called, uh, he's called the Saudis out on uh, their human rights violation, that doesn't mean you don't go and confront them and have conversations and can continue to be the leader of the free world that the president is. And so uh, if you listen to his clip, uh, I agree 100 percent that we shouldn't be cozying up. And the president believes that. And it, what he is doing is far uh, different from what uh, President uh, Trump did. He's not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. He's continuing to lead. And he has uh, been very clear uh, on his Uh, his view and
0: policy when it comes to the Saudis. All right, Cedric Richmond, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Kanye West's former publicist, the 2020 election and the big lie, all part of a body cam video being examined for a grand jury investigation. What am I talking about? Stay with us. In our politics lead now, a big development in the Georgia investigation into former President Trump's baseless claims of voter fraud and other related activity. Investigators with the Fulton County District Attorney in Atlanta are now seeking testimony from a former Kanye West and R. Kelly publicist. The publicist allegedly approached an election worker and pressured her to admit that Trump's false claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election were true. The election worker went to the police. CNN's Sarah Murray is diving into the development. Sir, do we know when the publicist is set to testify before the grand jury? And what does this tell us about the Georgia investigation?
18: Well, according to the court filings that we obtained, the investigators wanted to see this publicist, and Kuti, before the grand jury this month. We reached out to Kuti for comment, though, and she didn't say really anything to our request, so we don't know if she's planning to comply. Now, this is a bizarre story, but follow along with me. This publicist shows up at this election worker's house after the 2020 election. The election worker calls the police. She's already been the subject of a number of threats. The two women agree to meet at this police precinct, and then it's recorded on this body cam footage you can see now. So in portions of that body camera footage, here are some things the publicist says to the election worker. I cannot say what specifically will take I just know that it will disrupt your freedom the publicist goes on to say you are a loose end for a party that needs to tidy up She also put the election worker on the phone with various people during their interaction So investigators said in this court filing they needed to speak to the publicist to understand who she was working for Why she went there who she connected this election worker with on the phone and essentially what is going on here? And I think what it tells you about the investigation is just how sprawling it is in Georgia. You know, this is obviously not the central Donald Trump, Brad Raffensburger phone call we're talking about, but it tells you that the D.A. is turning over all kinds of things that she wants to look into, Jake.
0: And Sarah, are there other witnesses that the grand jury there in Atlanta could be hearing from in the coming weeks?
18: There are. The D.A. was pretty thorough in subpoenaing a number of officials from the Georgia Secretary of State's office. For instance, one of the key ones, I think, coming up in the next few weeks is going to be Gabe Sterling. That's one of Brad Raffensperger's deputy deputies. Remember this plea that Gabe Sterling made to then-President Donald Trump after the 2020 election.
14: Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. and You need to step up and say this is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed.
18: That's December 1st as Gabe Sterling is begging the president to denounce the harassment, saying he's going to cause violence. And, of course, we know what happened on January 6th when rioters stormed the Capitol, Jake.
0: Yep. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss with my panels. Let me start with you. (coughs) Obviously, the George investigation looks bad for President Trump. But in terms of this publicist... Mm. Uh, the challenge is going to be how do you connect that person Mm -hmm. seeming to threaten an election worker with an official order from Donald Trump, right? Right. I mean, this is going to be the challenge for all of this stuff. No, absolutely.
19: Each one of these instances, you can't just say that this is another person that's promoting election fraud and therefore it will apply to this case. But what it does show is the ripple effects and the continued inspiring that the president did When he was promoting repeatedly these false claims about the election uh, in the lead up to January 6th from Election Day, we've now seen that it's uh, there's a lot of attention right now as well on on his top officials. The January 6th uh, hearing and investigation, the Justice Department investigation. But we're seeing that there's these things happening as well on the local level, which is indicative, if not of evidence that of, of any wrongdoing by Trump, at that point, legally. It is indicative of the ripple effects of his continued promotion of the big lie.
0: So there's, there's um, a, a kind of a kerfuffle going on, a minor kerfuffle, uh, between the leaders uh, of the January 6th committee. The chairman, Benny Thompson, a, a Democrat of Mississippi, suggested that it's not the role of the committee to make a criminal referral, if they find criminal conduct, to the Justice Department. Uh, Liz Cheney contradicted him. She's the vice chair, Republican from Wyoming. She said the January 6th Select Committee has not issued a conclusion regarding potential criminal referrals. We will announce a decision on that at an appropriate time, basically saying Chairman Thompson's wrong. We haven't made a decision on whether to do this or not. And just a few minutes ago, she put out a video on Twitter from the January 6th Committee um, in which she uh, includes a a new clip uh, of Trump White House lawyer Eric Hirschman talking about his conversation with conservative lawyer John Eastman. Eastman is the one who came up with this FACACTA plan on how to <laughs> steal the electoral votes in the House. Eastman asked Hirschman what he thought about efforts in Georgia to challenge the election results. Hirschman said he only wanted to hear about an orderly transition. Um, take a listen.
16: I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. And I feel like Eventually, he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great in criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung
0: up on him. Now, that's interesting, Jonah, um, because Liz Cheney put that out there amidst this whole idea about whether or not the committee should be referring any, anything to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution.
9: Right. And also, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's a minor kerfuffle, but... We are in the kerfuffle criminology business, so we have to figure out. uh, Also, the fact that they canceled the 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 hearing, they postponed the hearing about basically the DOJ aspects of this stuff, which would have presumably been about these questions of a criminal referral. It does seem interesting that they would do this. Uh, What it what the larger significance is, it's almost impossible to know until we actually just sort of hear the thing. I personally think, as much as I admire Liz Cheney and understand. And in a perfect world, wouldn't mind a criminal referral. I think politically, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense uh, to go down that rabbit hole.
15: And it doesn't make a lot of sense to the Justice Department anyway, because they're going to do whatever they want to do. I mean, this committee found two people in contempt of Congress. Congress voted on it. And the Justice Department decided not to indict uh, Scavino and uh, Meadows. Right. So... They will do what they want to do. And if they want to be seen, and I think this was Benny Thompson's point, which is this is not our job. Our job is to tell you how we're going to make sure that this can never happen again. We are a congressional committee. We're not a legal uh, entity. Although that's also an argument not def-
9: to try to recommend getting rid of the electoral college. They're, they're all, well, that the that they're they're
13: all that defining these roles in this moment uh, in a new and interesting way, because the Department of Justice absolutely could find a way to go directly after these conspirators and any of these individuals that have been sure. subpoenaed by Congress. So the negotiation of the lines between executive and congressional Right now are especially important, given this moment in our democracy. And that's what the committee is ultimately trying to get to, whether it's a delayed hearing or not. They they know what they know. They are trying to tell a very compelling story to the American public over a course of several hearings to then get to a very particular political and cultural moment in which the American public will come along with the demands for accountability this attack on our democracy but
0: don't you think liz cheney and this is not my original idea this was what jonah said suggested i think if mm-hmm. i was hearing you correctly but don't you think that liz cheney is by putting out this clip today suggesting hey don't listen to me right, right. trump white house counsel attorneys thought that criminal defense attorneys were going to have to be hired by if not donald trump john eastman and other people part of this
19: no absolutely and You've already seen here, you can assess from the, just the decision to put out this video, they don't want any anyone in the public to already conclude whether or not there's going to be criminal referrals or not at this point. And just because the chairman puts out that statement, you don't want at that point people to then walk away right. thinking this is already sealed and done What's what's even going to happen and in this next hearing? Coming from about a Republican,
13: right? Coming from Liz Cheney is very different than the black Democrat, Benny Thompson. So the optics of this are very important, especially as we're seeing all of the witnesses so far have been from the Republican side of the aisle, have been from inside Trump world. Well,
15: I, I think the timing is mm-hmm. such a key point here, particularly for Liz Cheney. Right. They're going through this hearing. We saw the hearing yesterday. Sure. Was it yesterday? We saw the hearing yesterday. We saw Hirschman yesterday. I mean, She believes clearly there's criminal culpability. She quotes a judge who says there's criminal culpability here. She doesn't want people to turn off, as you were saying.
19: But these multiple statements here, speaking about the optics, it really does also show the struggle here. Look, the Justice Department is still going forth with this investigation. And the last thing they want is to or the thing they want is to avoid any of these accusations, which are likely to come of this being partisan, Justice Department and the Congress. My only
9: point was that I don't think pursuing criminal referrals on Trump makes a lot of sense. John Eastman, you know, (laughs) I I look forward to hearing from him about how bad the apple brown betty is in federal prison. Great. That's a different issue.
0: No one's arguing that that's going to divide the country. John Eastman being prosecuted. Um, Yesterday in the hearing, we heard video testimony from former Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien. This part was interesting. Take a listen.
9: Two groups of family. We called them kind of my team and Rudy's team. I I didn't mind being characterized as being part of team normal. I think along the way, I've built up a pretty good, I hope, a a good reputation for being honest and and professional. And I I didn't think what was happening was necessarily honest or professional.
0: So he making himself out to be somebody who was honest and professional, he doesn't respect Donald Trump's election lies. But he is working with a bunch of election liars to defeat Republicans that are not election liars. Uh, Specifically, uh, I believe, is that in, uh, that's the Alaska Senate candidate to go after um, Murkowski, and that's the Wyoming congressional candidate to go after Liz Cheney. So I don't...
9: uh, No, that that part bothers me less. I mean, it's mercenary and it's all that. The part that bothers me is that the teen normal guy who says his, he was obliged to be honest and tell the truth only did so under under a subpoena. Right, right. I mean, like he let Donald Trump go out and lie about all these things and peddle all this stuff, and he told Donald Trump the truth to his face, but he didn't. Go any further than that until he was actually drugged before that's, a committee. That's yeah. all part
13: of the grift, though, right? Is the idea that any one of these individuals in real time could have made a difference, could have made a stand of honor, but instead they're playing that yeah. I was just doing my job. While well, Bill Stepion and his campaigns have benefited from $230 million of Trump capitalizing on election yeah, fraud or grifting. writing books
15: like Barr. So
0: Rudy so, yeah. Giuliani took to Twitter today. He didn't like the fact that there were a couple individuals in the testimony yesterday, uh Jason Miller and Bill Stepion. Uh, suggesting that maybe he'd had a little bit too much to drink the Mm -hmm. night of the election. He wrote, and then he has since deleted, I am disgusted and outraged at the outright lie by Jason Miller and Bill Stepien. I was upset that they were not prepared for the massive cheating, as well as other lawyers around the president. I refused all alcohol that evening. My (laughs) favorite drink, Diet Pepsi, he continues. Is the false testimony from Miller and Stepien because I yelled at them? Are they being paid to lie? Then he also tweeted some, uh, stories about Stepien and Jason Miller that were not particularly uh, flattering, uh, and one of which uh, is uh, kind of pornographic. Uh,
19: at
15: all. <laughs>
19: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not too uh, surprised that, that uh, Rudy Giuliani at this point is continuing to promote false claims about the election or pushed back on what we saw at the hearing yesterday. What those interactions did show us, though, is not like there's been any lack of evidence of this, but it's further confirmation that on that night, the president did not have uh, uh, sufficient evidence that there was actually uh, any sort of fraudulence with the election, but rather people close to him were saying um, uh, the exact opposite. But he chose to go with somebody like Rudy Giuliani, who was telling him basically what he wanted to hear. And Liz Cheney's words might have been inebri- inebriated, Apparently
15: he was inebriated. Apparently so wanna inebriated. Apparently. You want to say it? You want to say I mean, there was the story told yesterday that you know we had to figure out what to do. He was going to go up and see the president of the United States and the team normal, as he called, as Stepien Mm -hmm. called it, had to get together and figure out what we were going to do and how we were going to keep Rudy Giuliani from saying something dumb to the president, which, of course, he did.
2: Yeah.
0: Whether well, it was he all was
15: that, inebriated or not. It was all the that President diet. Pepsi to him, does, right? It does crazy <laughs> it thing, does it does to
0: things to people. Yeah. All that saccharine. Thanks one and all for being here. I appreciate it. Why Ukrainian soldiers say these smaller Americans' weapons smaller American weapons will not be enough to kick Russia out of their country. Stay with us. In our world lead, more weapons and equipment are soon to be headed to Ukraine, according to a top Pentagon official who says allies are ready to announce additional help at a key meeting tomorrow. As Ukraine's deputy defense minister minister says in total, Ukraine has only received 10% of what they've asked for from Western allies. CNN's Ben Wiedemann visits now Ukrainian soldiers preparing for battle on the front lines. They say the weapons they have are not sufficient.
12: American symbol, American weapon. Ukrainian troops try out new equipment. U.S. supplied M4 rifles fresh out of the box. Away from the front lines, these soldiers are preparing to join the battle raging in the east. This exercise is designed to accustom Ukrainian forces to the use of Western weapons. This is an American 50-caliber machine gun firing Italian bullets. There's a problem though. We're told that there's not enough Western ammunition. And not enough weapons either. Even in this drill, much of the firepower dates back to the Soviet era. Ukrainian forces are slowly losing ground in the battle for the eastern Donbass region. Morale here is high.
10: Good morning, Vietnam!
12: (laughs) Yet no one believes these rifles will halt the Russian advance. This? Yeah. this is not enough. Ukrainian officials say Russian artillery outnumbers their artillery at a ratio of perhaps more than 10 to 1. Used to deadly effect in the city of Severodonetsk, now almost completely under Russian control. Big guns, not small arms, could help Ukraine turn the tide.
19: I can protect myself as a soldier with this weapon. I can protect my comrades. But unfortunately, I can't uh, clear my country from invaders using only this rifle. So we need more... Artillery. We need heavy rocket system and other
12: ser- seriously weapon because it's uh, the modern war.
9: From USA.
12: The US and its allies have delivered advanced weapon systems to Ukraine, and more are on the way. But the army here is losing men at an alarming rate. More than a hundred killed in action every day, according to Ukrainian officials. We need a basic minimum to avoid more casualties. Artillery, smart weapons, radar, drones, and people to train us, says the commander, Lieutenant Alexander, a veteran of the French Foreign Legion. We've shown we will fight. We will learn to use these weapons. And that will take time. And time is a luxury this nation at war cannot afford. And it's probably too late now for the city of Severodonetsk, where the defenders there, the three bridges have been destroyed that connected them to Ukrainian-controlled territory. I was in Severodonetsk uh, for many days back in April, and it was clear back then uh, that the Russians far outnumbered the Ukrainians in terms of artillery, but didn't seem to make any difference. And now that battle may soon come to an end. Jake?
0: Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine, thank you so much. Hunter Biden's ex-wife is talking, and she's talking about their finances during 24 years of marriage. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the ex-wife of Hunter Biden, Kathleen Buell, is speaking out about her tumultuous 24-year marriage that ended in 2017. And in a new interview about her memoir out this week called If We Break, she dodged a question about where her personal relationship with President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden presently stands. Let's go right to CNN's Kate Bennett. Kate, explain the complicated relationship between the Bidens and their former daughter-in-law and the mother of their grandkids today.
20: Right. So if we go back to 2017 when Kathleen Buell and Hunter Biden divorced, He went on to have a relationship, or he had a relationship, with her sister-in-law, his brother's widow, Hallie Biden, which Joe Biden and Jill Biden blessed in a very public statement uh, talking about how lucky the two were to have found each other. I'm talking about Hallie and Hunter now, not, not Kathleen, and how you know through grief they found each other and they fully support this relationship. Meanwhile, Kathleen, who had been married to Hunter for more than two decades, who had Raised as children, who was part of the Biden family, very much held her identity in the Biden family. It was kind of just to make that one narrative work, that relationship, that support. She sort of had to drop off, and I think that, you know, you compound betrayal. There, there must be uh, a reason she sidestepped that question about that relationship today. She did say divorce is hard. It was hard on the whole family. She gave credit to Joe and Jill Biden for being excellent and supportive grandparents to their children. Mm. Um, But, you know, it was a very messy and convoluted situation um, that the Bidens picked aside very publicly.
0: Hmm. And she also went into, Kathleen Buell also went into detail about how she had no knowledge or control over her finances when she was married to Hunter Biden. Of course, Hunter Biden, of course, is at the center of a Justice Department investigation into his financial dealings and taxes.
20: Right. I mean, one of the important points she made in her interview this morning was that she, you know, by choice, did not understand, want to acknowledge, want to be involved in his business dealings, and thus their finances as a married couple. Uh, She talked about just how deeply she didn't know anything earlier today. We can take a listen to that. It's embarrassing to say that I ceded all financial control to my husband, I liked the nice things, and I didn't want to think about the cost at which they were coming. So back to that investigation, she actually said she would be no help to the Department of Justice. She didn't know anything, buried her head in the sand. These are her words. Um, So she's sort of saying, I don't know anything about what was going on with him. But she did acknowledge in the interview today that Hunter Biden is someone who knew he came from a family of privilege and that he had advantages because of that she didn't tie it explicitly to his business dealings or that he used that name or et cetera. But she did say that, of course, he knew he was a Biden and that came, you know, with all sorts of things. And she said herself, you know, changing her name back to Buell from Biden in 2019, was a huge step for her. Uh, just sort of understanding that she no longer lived in this bubble of this political dynasty, this family.
0: All right. Thank you so much. One town just got the equivalent of three months' worth of rain and melting snow in three days. And now residents are surrounded by raging floodwaters. Stay with us. Shockingly high water levels are causing major issues for cities around Yellowstone National Park. Heavy rains combined with melting snow inundated the area, and at least 12 people have had to be rescued by Montana's National Guard after becoming stranded. In Gardner, Montana, which is now surrounded by water, video captured an entire building collapsing and being swept away in the Yellowstone River. Montana's governor issued a statewide disaster today to help communities impacted by the severe weather. Roads in and out of Yellowstone National Park remain closed through tomorrow. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at TikTok. At TikTok. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.
8: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.